See one, do one, teach one. That may be a cornerstone of medical teaching, but does it accurately reflect the learning curve? How long is a surgeon's learning curve? You're listening to a special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Andrew Vickers. Dr. Vickers is an associate attending research methodologist at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York City. Dr. Vickers' clinical research focuses on three areas, randomized trials, surgical outcomes research, and molecular markers studies. Today we'll be discussing a surgeon's surgical experience and clinical outcomes after radical prostatectomy. Hi, Dr. Vickers. It's great of you to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Very glad to be here. It's a well-known adage that practice makes perfect and that it applies to surgical outcomes. What made you decide to undertake another study looking at the surgeon's experience and the outcomes they achieve? Well, a big interest in cancer care right now is how the outcomes of various surgical procedures depend on characteristics of the surgeon. And there's been papers that have been going back 10 or 15 years now that show that the sort of results surgeons get at a specialist cancer centers seem to be better than the results that surgeons get when they're working in smaller community settings. And that's been associated with what's been called surgical volume. If a surgeon is doing a large number of cases per year, then he or she is getting, uh, seems to be getting better results. Most of those studies have looked at outcomes such as post-operative complications or readmission rates. In other words, outcomes that weren't specific to the reason why the patient is seeing the surgeon in the first place, which is to cure their cancer. Now, we got a data set from a radical prostatectomy, which is surgery for prostate cancer. And the interesting thing about that data set is that the, the main outcome was biochemical recurrence of the cancer. So after somebody gets surgery for prostate cancer, they get, go for blood tests every few months. And if you detect PSA, prostate-specific antigen, in the blood, you know the cancer has returned. This is a molecule that's only found in the prostate. These patients have their prostate removed. So if you find this molecule in the blood, you know there must be prostate cells somewhere in the body, and those cells must be cancer cells. So we had this data set, and we realized we would be able to look at the effect of surgeon on a cancer outcome rather than no doubt important outcomes such as, as complications or functional patients' function was after surgery, but not the key reason why patients went to see the surgeon in the first place. How large was the data set you looked at? Uh, well, we started with nearly 10,000 patients and for various reasons, such as some of the patients had, had received other therapies before receiving their radical prostatectomy. We ended up with close to 8,000 patients. and These were patients treated from 1987 to 2004 at four major U.S. academic institutions, including Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Wayne State University, and the Baylor College of Medicine. Another very nice thing about these data were that there were, there were actually 72 different surgeons so we've really got a good, nicely heterogeneous data set, lots of interesting data there too that we could analyze to try and come to some conclusions about the effect of surgeon-specific factors. What was sort of the range in terms of number of procedures from X to Y? The nice thing about a learning curve study is we, we had in this data set pretty much the entire 
career history of most of the surgeons. Now, some of the surgeons had moved hospitals and we only had their sort of 30th case. We had to go back to them and say, was this your first case? They said, no, I'd done 30 beforehand. But for most of them, we had their entire career history. So some of the patients on our data set had been treated by a surgeon who had no prior experience. It was their very, very first case. And some patients were treated by surgeons with 1,000 or 1,500 or 1,800 prior radical prostatectomies. That's a huge range. Bottom line, how many prostatectomies does a surgeon have to do before I should let one of them operate on me? In our main study, what we found was a very steep learning curve that started to plateau at about 250 or 350 prior surgeries. The difference in outcome for a patient treated by an experienced surgeon with, say, 250 prior cases compared to a less experienced surgeon, and we define that as having, uh, you know, 10 prior cases, was highly significant. It was a a very large effect. We estimated a five-year probability of prostate cancer occurrence of close to 18% for the inexperienced surgeons compared to close to 11% for patients treated by the the more experienced surgeon. So that's an absolute decrease in risk of 7 or 8%. Based on the results, what was the shape of the learning curve? Well, in our first paper, we looked at the combining results of all patients. We saw a learning curve that increased steeply up to about 250 to 350 surgeries, and then pretty much flattened off. And this would suggest that the surgeon's ability to cure cancer increased very rapidly. But then once you'd reached 250 or 350 surgeries, you'd, you'd got as good as you were, you were going to get. And there were no really large increases in the surgeon's ability to, to cure cancer. Did you find that surgical outcomes varied by risk factors, patient risk factors? That's actually a great question. A very, very important distinction in prostate cancer and it, it, with respect to its surgical treatment is whether the tumor is organ-confined or locally advanced. So what that means is when you take out the prostate and you look at where the cancer is, is the, is the cancer just inside the actual prostate capsule or is it grown outside the capsule, perhaps uh, getting into the seminal vesicles or the lymph nodes? And what we found was that the learning curve for the locally advanced disease, so cancers that had grown outside the prostate, did indeed plateau. And again, at about the same point, 250 to 350 prior surgeries. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, is it's roughly what we'd expect. Some of those patients, the cancer, if it's spread outside the, the prostate, it might well have spread elsewhere in the body, and there might be micrometastases, say, in the bone. And, of course, the surgeon, by treating the prostate, is not treating the bone, is unable to remove those cancer cells. And irrespective of, of how well or badly that surgeon does the operation, that patient will recur. Now, the really interesting thing is when we looked at organ-confined tumors. So these are prostate cancers where we see no evidence that the cancer is actually spread outside the prostate. Now, for those cancers, the learning curve went all the way up to close to 100% recurrence-free survival. In other words, the most experienced surgeons had very, very low recurrence rates for patients with organ-confined tumors, which suggests that a patient having a recurrence in organ-confined disease, the, what drives that recurrence is surgical technique. I'd like to welcome those who have just joined us for this special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Vickers of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York City. We're discussing surgical outcomes based on the surgeon's learning curve. 
What techniques or talking to the surgeons that are doing these procedures, have you found any key points, key factors that should be taught to others so they get better results other than keep trying? The obvious hypothesis that is generated from our study is, you know, what is it that experienced surgeons are doing that the less experienced surgeons are not doing that is helping to cure cancer? Of course, the interesting thing is we spend billions of dollars in labs looking at cancer cells under the microscope and doing analyses of, of genes and so on. And yet the main way that we cure cancer, which is surgery, we're not spending the same sort of dollars looking at surgeons' technique. And I think these sorts of studies would justify some careful studies of what it is the surgeons are actually doing with their instruments in the operating room that is affecting whether a patient is cured of their cancer or ends up having a cancer recurrence. It sounds like you've opened up a Pandora's box here. What do you tell the administrators at Sloan Kettering as to who should be allowed to do radical prostatectomies? Well, the nice thing at Memorial Sloan Kettering is that if a patient comes here and receives a radical prostatectomy, they receive that operation from a surgeon who specializes in that procedure. So I think I mentioned before, the learning curve starts to plateau about 250 to 350 cases. Now, many, many surgeons who are operating here do that number of cases in a year. So all of our surgeons are very, very experienced and are likely to get very, very good results. And that, that's very common in any comprehensive cancer center. Now, we've done another study looking at how many cases do surgeons typically do in the community. We looked at a database called the National Inpatient Sample to get our data. And, and the year for which data were last available, uh, 2005, uh, we analyzed those data and we, roughly what we found was this, that if you got every single surgeon in America who had done at least one radical prostatectomy in 2005 and you put them all in a room and you asked them how many of these very difficult, complex cancer treatment surgery had you done in 2005, the most common answer would be a single one. About 24, 25% of our sample had only done one radical prostatectomy. 80% had done 10 or fewer in 2005. And 90% had done 25 or fewer radical prostatectomies in 2005. So in other words, 80 or 90% of the surgeons who do radical prostatectomy in the United States are unlikely ever to get up the learning curve in the course of their career. And that's why one of the main implications of our study is that it's very important to be treated at a specialist cancer center by a surgeon who specializes in the operation, uh, has likely done a lot of these procedures before, and is therefore likely to get the best results. But let me pin you down on a practical point. What about the rookies? How are they going to reach 250 because eventually your pros are going to retire and do they basically have to be supervised until they hit the number? That's a very interesting implication of our study. Many people have looked at our results and have said, yes, this supports a recommendation for regionalization, which means that you only do cancer surgery at regional centers where the surgeons are doing a lot of cases. So in other words, more patients are going to be treated by surgeons who are further up the learning curve than currently. But as you point out, surgeons have still got to get up the learning curve. Uh, they still have to learn their, their craft. I guess this comes back to my point about research on surgery. How do we get surgeons to learn faster? Now, currently, looking at the broad picture, becoming a surgeon isn't that much different from learning to drive. 
you have your education, your driver's ed or your, your, your residency, and then you pass your exam, whether that's a driving test or your, your boards, and then that's it. You can go out and drive or practice surgery and do pretty much what you want. Now, if you're a doctor, you have to do what's called continuing medical education, but that's really a case of you know, reading a few papers, attending a couple of meetings, and you can get that out of the way. There's no continuing further practical medical education. No surgeon comes in to see what you're doing. You don't have to prove that your skills are up to date. Now, if you're a pilot, of course, every six months or every year or something like that, you have to go and sit in there in a simulator and show that you can still fly an aircraft safely. You don't have to do that as a surgeon. A very fine point to end on, and an important one also. I'd like to thank Dr. Andrew Vickers, who's been my guest for this special segment on medical education. We've been discussing the surgeon's learning curve. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and enjoy our on-demanded podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.